the crime of aggression is a leadership crime. And the idea is we're trying to go after and hold responsible the people most responsible for the war. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24, 2022, there have been numerous examples of war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by Russian soldiers. Many of these crimes are being investigated and prosecuted by local Ukrainian courts and by the International Criminal Court. But the crime of launching this illegal war in the first place is not, as of yet, under any court's jurisdiction. My guest today, Ona Hathaway, is seeking to change that. She is a professor at Yale Law School who has been advocating for the creation of a UN-backed special tribunal to prosecute the crime of aggression committed by Russian leaders in Ukraine. And in recent weeks and months, this proposal, which she articulated in a recent foreign affairs piece, is gaining some traction. We kick off defining what we mean by the crime of aggression before discussing the politics of creating a special internationally backed mechanism to prosecute specific leaders, including Vladimir Putin, for the crime of aggression. This conversation will give you a really good starting point for understanding what will be one of the key debates around justice and accountability for Russian war crimes in Ukraine. I think you will appreciate this, and I recommend you do check out that foreign affairs piece. Now, here is my conversation with Ona Hathaway, professor of law at Yale Law School. The crime of aggression, kind of simply put, is the crime of waging an illegal aggressive war. Now, historically, waging war wasn't illegal at all. It was perfectly legal and legitimate for much of the history of the modern state. But war was first outlawed in 1928, the much maligned Kellogg-Briand Pact, which if you've ever heard of it, you've probably mostly heard of it as a punchline and a joke. It was the treaty that outlawed war between the two major world wars. 
But it was more than a punchline. It actually did make a difference. Among the things that it did was it made war illegal for the first time. And so after World War II, the reason that the Nuremberg courts could be set up to try the Nazis for what they call the crimes against peace, which is a version of the crime of aggression, was because the Germans and Japanese, who were also tried separately, could be prosecuted for violating the Keller-Brand Pact. In fact, the Nuremberg first count at Nuremberg specifically mentioned the fact that the wars were waged in violation of this treaty that both Germany and Japan had signed. Now, in the modern era, that's a little different. So the crimes against the peace is what they called it in Nuremberg, and it was for the violation of the Keller-Brand Pact, which had outlawed war. Today, the crime of aggression is generally understood as waging a war that's in violation of the United Nations Charter, which is a treaty that was concluded at the end of World War II. And one of its key provisions is that it prohibits states from using force against one another. So in the modern era, the crime of aggression is a violation of the United Nations Charter. Of course, there have been numerous violations of that charter Most recently, of course, was Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But you can go back to even, say, like NATO's intervention in Kosovo in 1999, which was not approved by the Security Council, or probably the Sarkis example is the 2003 U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. Those could also be considered crimes of aggression. Yeah, I mean, potentially. So under the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court, which is the only court since the Nuremberg Tribunal that has jurisdiction over the crime of aggression, it has a kind of narrow definition of the crime of aggression, and that is, quote, a manifest violation of the United Nations Charter's prohibition on use of force. And part of the reason they use that term manifest is in part to exclude from prosecution in front of the Rome statute any violation where it's not entirely clear it's a violation or where there might be a kind of arguable case that it's legal. Now, I think the two examples that you cited are actually examples where it was a pretty clear violation of the United Nations Charter, but I think that's part of what the authors of the statute had in mind. It's also important to remember that the ICC didn't exist at the time of the Kosovo intervention. And the crime of aggression had not yet been activated in the International Criminal Court by the time of the U.S. invasion into Iraq. So there wasn't a court that had been established yet that could have prosecuted those crimes. But I think you're right to observe that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is not the only violation of the charter that we've seen in the last 75 years. But it is the fact that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the first very clear example of the crime of aggression since the parts of the Rome statute that deal with the crime of aggression entered into force a few years ago. Yet the crime of aggression is not a prosecutable offense by the ICC in current circumstances. Could you just briefly explain why that is, even though the ICC does have a really robust and ongoing investigation into crimes against humanity and other war crimes in Ukraine. So this is kind of confusing, but let me try to lay it out as best I can. So the International Criminal Court, which was created in 2002, has jurisdiction over four crimes. 
So those are crimes against humanity, war crimes, genocide, and the crime of aggression. Now, those first three crimes are already being investigated by the International Criminal Court as having been committed in Ukraine. And the reason for that is that Ukraine submitted to the jurisdiction of the court in 2014, and then it reaffirmed and extended that submission in 2015. Those crimes, having been committed on the soil of Ukraine, can be prosecuted by the court because of Ukraine's consent, even though those who are being investigated are states that are maybe citizens of states that have not agreed to the jurisdiction of the court. Now, the crime of aggression, though, is different. So unlike the other three crimes, they initially couldn't agree on a definition when the Rome Statute was initially negotiated, the Rome Statute that creates the International Criminal Court. So they agreed to kind of postpone agreeing on that until they could kind of get together and agree on some amendments that would amend the statute to define the crime of aggression and establish its jurisdiction. They did that finally in a conference that amended the statute in 2010 in Kampala, Uganda. And that was the first time that they sort of agreed on a definition. And they had these amendments in place and the jurisdiction that they established was narrower than for the other crimes. So it was narrower in the following respect. You could only be prosecuted for the crime of aggression if you not only had ratified the Rome Statute that creates the court, but also had ratified these amendments. So unlike the other crimes, which can be brought against a non-state party if they've committed their crimes on the territory of a state that is party to the statute, this is a crime that does not extend to non-state parties or even to parties of the statute who haven't agreed to the amendments to the statute. So in other words, because Russia has not ratified the Rome Statute, Russian leaders are not prosecutable for the crime of aggression under the Rome Statute that created the ICC. Exactly. And that's because of this jurisdictional quirk or this jurisdictional limit that was put in place that doesn't allow this court to prosecute anyone who's from a state that is not a party to the Rome Statute and the amendments to the statute. So that includes Russians, that includes the leaders of Belarus, that includes any leaders of a state that is not party to the statute. It also incidentally includes the United States because the U.S. also is not a party to the statute. And in fact, the U.S. was one of the reasons that this concession was made that this limitation on the crime of aggression was made was because the United States at that meeting in Kampala, Uganda, was arguing for it because the U.S. didn't want to be caught up in a prosecution for crime of aggression. And it didn't intend at the time to become a party to the statute. So they wanted this narrower jurisdiction and managed to get it. And now, of course, that's coming back to bite us because it means that the ICC can't prosecute Russians for waging this very illegal war. Yeah, because up until you know 2010, the U.S. in recent history was more likely to circumvent the U.N. charter to wage a war of aggression like in Iraq or Kosovo. I do want to have you in a little bit explain your remedy to this jurisdictional dilemma and offer your proposal on how the international community, the UN, might create a court to try the crime of aggression in Ukraine. But before we get there, I'd love to just have you lay out the argument of why 
why is it important, do you believe, to prosecute the crime of aggression, specifically the crime of Russia aggression in Ukraine? My view is that the international legal order fundamentally depends on this prohibition on force. So Article 2.4 of the UN Charter prohibits states from resorting to force against one another. That is the kind of lodestar of the modern international legal system. It is the core of our system of rule of law at the international level. And if that erodes, if states can invade their neighbors and take their stuff and kill their citizens and annex their territory, then we're going to be living in a much more brutal and bloody world than we do today. So this is a really fundamental underlying principle. It's not just one rule among many. And we're like, oh, this is terrible that this has been broken, but it's like one of a bunch of rules that have been broken. No, this one really is the fundamental underlying principle of the system. And if that gets broken, and if that is accepted, then the rest of the system is in jeopardy because you'll never know, you know, if your neighbor is going to invade you, if you aggravate them by, say, suggesting you're going to join a military alliance with another state or your trade relations are, you know, ones that they don't like. And in fact, historically, again, just to kind of take the historical perspective, that's what the world used to look like. I wrote a book called The Internationalists, where I document with a colleague, Scott Shapiro, the way in which the world used to look, what we called the old world order. And in that world, you know, states could go to war against each other for failure to pay debts, for wife stealing. The first war manifesto was issued for wife stealing, for interference with trade relations, for breaking treaty obligations. There were all these reasons that states could go to war. And the last thing we want to do is go back there. And so it's really important that the international community as a whole really reject this illegal war. And Although I agree with you that these other wars that you mentioned were violations of the charter, this is kind of a different in kind in that really this is a large state has already annexed a significant portion of its neighbor and intends, it seems, to annex the rest of it. And that really poses a fundamental threat to the international system. And it's one that the system has to use all of the tools it has to reject. And one of those tools is criminal liability, is holding the leaders responsible for the crime that they've waged, which is this crime of aggression. And so there is some momentum behind the idea of creating some sort of special court to prosecute Russia's war of aggression on Ukraine. What are some of the proposals that are floating out there? Well, so you're right that there's kind of growing momentum behind this idea that, yes, we need to prosecute the crime of aggression and recognition that the ICC is highly unlikely to be able to do that, given these jurisdictional limits. Now, there is a move to try and amend the statute of the International Criminal Court so that going forward, it would be able to prosecute these kinds of crimes in the court. But the amendment procedures tend to be cumbersome. They take time. They probably will take years. And so that's a kind of long-term fix, but it's not really a response to the particular problem in front of us. So there are a number of proposals out there, but the one that I have strongly advocated is the proposal to create a special tribunal to try the crime of aggression through the United Nations. Now, you can't do it through the Security Council because Russia has a veto. 
So the alternative is to do it through a recommendation of the General Assembly, which has already voted several times to condemn the invasion and which has the advantage of, you know, every state has a vote. And it is, again, the UN Charter's fundamental principles that are being violated. So there's something appropriate about the United Nations General Assembly having a say in rejecting that through recommending the creation of this court. Isn't there some precedent for that? Like the Cambodia, what are they called? Like the Extraordinary Chambers of Cambodia was created that way. Perhaps even was like the Sierra Leone Special Tribunal created that way? Yeah. So those are both examples. So the Special Court for Sierra Leone and the Extraordinary Chambers to try crimes that took place in Cambodia are both good examples. Neither of them is exactly the same. The Special Court for Sierra Leone was established by the Security Council, but it wasn't acting under its extraordinary powers under what's called Chapter 7. It was similarly recommending to the Secretary General that he establish this court through negotiations with Sierra Leone, which he ultimately did. And then the Cambodia court was also established this time through a vote of the General Assembly recommending the creation of the court. But it was set up within the Cambodian domestic system, as it says, extraordinary chambers of Cambodia. But melding these two examples together, there's confidence among international lawyers that the way that you could do this would be to have a recommendation from the General Assembly to set up this court through a treaty with Ukraine. And that would be drawing on both of these precedents. And then that special court would be created through the United Nations with the consent and participation of Ukraine. But it would be a truly international court, not a chambers within the Ukrainian legal system. And of course, the idea behind this is to prosecute top leadership in Russia for the crime of aggression, Vladimir Putin specifically. Yeah, that is the idea, right? So the crime of aggression is a leadership crime. And the idea is we're trying to go after and hold responsible the people most responsible for the war. Those are the people who've ordered the war to happen. And without that war taking place, none of these other crimes would take place. The war crimes wouldn't have happened. The crimes against humanity wouldn't have happened. The genocide wouldn't have happened if not for the illegal war in the first place. So you want to hold the people most responsible for the war, responsible criminally for waging that war. And to do that, you have to create a special tribunal to try the crime of aggression. And you have to have it be an international tribunal because only an international court can try the leaders of another country. Domestic courts have to recognize immunity for the head of state. And so a domestic court would not be able to prosecute Putin. What has been the position of the Biden administration thus far on the idea of creating some sort of special court to try aggression, given the United States' own complicated history with the crime of aggression? It has so far, and I think appropriately, sort of stayed on the sidelines. I think given the history, that's not a bad place for the United States to be. It's certainly not expressed any opposition to the idea. And in fact, has really warmed relations between the United States and the International Criminal Court, has sort of signaled a willingness to cooperate and assist the International Criminal Court to the extent that it legally can, given U.S. domestic law restrictions. And, you know, there is a real kind of openness to international criminal justice in this administration, and much more so certainly than there was during the Trump administration. They haven't taken a formal position on the special tribunal, 
I think, frankly, that's probably a good thing because other people have observed what you observed, which is there is this kind of oddity that, you know, the other country responsible for sort of a blatant violation of the charter is arguably the United States with the invasion of Iraq. And so for the U.S. to kind of be a leader in this effort, I think, would rankle many other states. So and the U.S. is making the right choice and kind of stepping back and sitting back and letting others take the charge. But it is also not stepped in the way or not suggested opposition. And I think in general probably does support it, but is letting others kind of coalesce support around the court before it takes a public position. And in terms of creating this court, as you said, it would require an act of the General Assembly. I mean, do you take it as a given that the General Assembly would approve creating a special court on aggression? I mean, early on, we saw real unanimity in the General Assembly to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but that unanimity has begun to erode. You're seeing a lot more abstentions in Russia-related condemnations at the General Assembly. There was this vote you know, maybe six months ago to boot Russia from the Human Rights Council that was you know, not as lopsided as one would have thought. How do you perceive that the majority or key countries or key groups of countries in the General Assembly would approach a question of creating a court to try the crime of aggression? Well, I think it's a really fair question. And ultimately, it's as much a political question as it is a legal one, or maybe more a political question than it is a legal one is politically, you know, what are people prepared to get behind? I think you're right that there was the initial condemnation right after the invasion by the General Assembly had 141 members in favor, five against. And then the vote to kick Russia out of the Human Rights Committee was much less strong. But then there was another resolution after that to condemn the illegal annexation of the eastern parts of Ukraine by Russia. And that vote was even more robust than the first one. There were, I think, 143 or 144 states in favor and, again, five against and a smaller number of abstentions. So while people were sort of after that vote on the Human Rights Council sort of saying, well, you know, maybe there's eroding support for this and the General Assembly, that second resolution, I think, kind of answered that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there will be robust vote in favor of creating a court. For that, you really have to do the kind of door-to-door diplomacy that is taking place in the UN right now of going around to states and trying to explain why this is important to them. And part of the reason I wrote the foreign affairs piece was to try to make this case and say, look, it's not just European states and not just Ukraine whose interests are on the line. It's everyone's interests that are on the line here because everyone has an interest in reaffirming the prohibition on war and a criminal court to prosecute the crime of aggression would send a really important message, not just to Russia, but to China, for instance, not to invade Taiwan, to other states that might be eyeing their less powerful neighbors and thinking, you know, this might be kind of convenient to go in and take what we want. Every state, I think, has a real interest in not having the world descend into a situation in which states can use force to get what they want. Because once we're there, it is going to be much more contentious, many more lives lost, and every state has an interest in avoiding that. I guess I would dispute your Taiwan analogy only because 
Taiwan is not a sovereign country, at least, you know, in the eyes of international law, right? I mean, China sees it as its own province and it has this kind of ambiguous status otherwise, but it's not sort of definitively its own sovereign country in the way that, say, Ukraine is, right? Right. I mean, that's that's a fair point. I think many people thought when Russia invaded Ukraine, it's like, well, all bets are off. You know, the world order is over and what's coming next is China's invasion of Taiwan. Now, you're right that Taiwan is not generally recognized by most states as an independent sovereign nation. Nonetheless, it has this kind of status that is not entirely recognized as being part of China either. The U.S. doesn't formally recognize Taiwan as an independent sovereign nation and yet has declared that it will defend it if it's invaded by China. So there is this kind of neither here nor there stance that many states have towards Taiwan. I think the broader point is just does might make right or do states have to use law and legal process in order to get what they want? Can states use military force to establish control over territory Or is that not going to be recognized? Is that not going to be allowed? Historically, if you could invade territory and take it and control it, it was yours. And no one was going to contest that. But that all changed when we outlawed war and reaffirmed that in the United Nations Charter. So if a special tribunal to try Russian aggression in Ukraine is up and running, it's operational, it indicts or somehow prosecutes Vladimir Putin convicts, say, even Vladimir Putin, to what extent does that potentially undermine or complicate efforts at a diplomatic resolution to this conflict? Obviously, you know, we're speaking now near the one-year anniversary of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It doesn't look like there's a diplomatic solution any time in the near future. But is there concern that efforts to seek justice for aggression against Russian leadership might undermine negotiations or diplomacy to end the war? To the extent that that's a concern, and that's always a concern that's voiced when it comes to international criminal justice mechanisms, you know, that they will slow down the ability to resolve a dispute or to bring a conflict to the end, that that is always the critique that's made. But, you know, here in this case, I think it's particularly an apposite because Putin is potentially already prosecutable in the International Criminal Court for those other three crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide, if he can be directly linked to those crimes. And that is that is an if, but I'm sure that there's efforts to try and sort of draw a kind of evidentiary link between events on the ground and his orders. And so it's already the case that he is likely to be subject to criminal prosecution in an international court. And so it doesn't, I think, change that all that much because, you know, he's going to already be prosecuted. He's not going to be able to leave Russia, I suspect, ever again, other than to go to states that don't recognize these courts. But there's a vanishingly small number of states that are on that ledger. Yeah, I think Lavrov is in Eswatini, formerly known as Swaziland, as we speak. They they might be one. Right. Lastly, you know, in the coming you know days or weeks or months, are there any events or indicators that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not momentum is building further for this kind of UN-backed special tribunal? I think what we're looking for is increasing, you know, more and more states announcing their support for this tribunal. So we've been seeing more and more states indicating that they're supportive of the idea of establishing an independent tribunal. 
to try the crime of aggression, that they have different views about whether it should be a hybrid tribunal or truly international tribunal, and there will be some debate about that. But a number of states have made clear that they're in favor of that, and I think more states joining that bandwagon and making a public declaration of their support. I think also a key step would be for Ukraine to actually write to the Secretary General and request the General Assembly to take this move and to indicate openness to it. I think if that were to happen, that would really open the floodgates and we would see real movement in this direction. I think so far, Ukraine has kind of been very clear. It strongly supports a special tribunal to try the crime of aggression, but kind of been on the fence as to how it will happen. That kind of more or less their view is whatever it takes, however it can happen, we'll support that. And they've been kind of stepping back and waiting to see kind of what gains the most momentum. And so far, none of these options has sort of been the clear leader. But I think if they were to do that, that would sort of really establish the idea of working through the UN as the way forward. So that would be a key indicator. You know, and as we have more states announcing their support, more academics and others coming out in support for it, I think that really will help build momentum because a lot of people are interested in making sure that there is accountability and, you know, every other state is kind of watching to see what every other state will do. And so the more states are willing to kind of get on board, the more comfortable it gets for other states to do the same. Professor Hathaway, thank you so much for your time. This was really helpful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>